Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so please make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everybody. My name is Jana Al-Hishash, and I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Florida and the host for today's episode on a endoscopic approach to recurrent acute and chronic pancreatitis. This series consists of six podcast episodes and three webinars and provides a comprehensive approach to diagnosing and treating patients with GI comorbidities. This podcast will focus on recently published AGA clinical practice update on the endoscopic approach to recurrent acute and chronic pancreatitis, which was published in Gastroenterology in October 2022. The manuscript was authored by Drs. Dan Strand, Ryan Law, Dennis Young, and Joseph Elmunzer. In today's episode, we are going to discuss recommendations for treating acute and chronic pancreatitis with endoscopy. We are joined by authors Drs. Dan Strand and Ryan Law, and I have the pleasure to also be accompanied by Dr. Greg Cote, who will be my co-host today. Dr. Dan Strand is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of Pancreatic Obiliary Endoscopy at the University of Virginia. Dr. Strand is the lead author on this clinical practice update. Dr. Ryan Law is an Associate Professor of Medicine specializing at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and has advanced training in complex endoscopic procedure. He also served as a lead author on this CPU. Dr. Gregory Cote is a Professor of Medicine and Division Head of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Oregon Health and Science University. He specializes in treating patients with disorders of the pancreas and bile ducts. He will serve as my co-host for today's podcast. So let's get started with today's discussion. You know, acute pancreatitis is so common, and at so many instances, no clear etiology is identified. We know that endoscopic ultrasound is more sensitive than cross-sectional imaging, such as MR, and it is also more invasive, operator-dependent, and not everybody, not all physicians, have access to it. So Dr. Strand, can you let us know what your preference as to which test we should proceed with after initial acute pancreatitis episode when no etiology for this acute pancreatitis has been identified? And if you don't mind also telling us when the best timing to perform this testing should be done. I actually really uh, appreciate this question a lot. It's a topic that my co-authors and I kind of discussed and we wanted to include in the CPU because it it touches an area that applies to uh, non-interventional endoscopists. So people that see these patients in the clinic, but maybe maybe don't always do their procedures. I'm going to answer it a little bit like a politician and I apologize for that, but I promise I'll close the circle kind of at the end. So you're right, about a quarter of patients with acute pancreatitis have an undetermined etiology, best described as unexplained at the beginning, kind of idiopathic when you go all the way down at the end of the, the arcade. And I, I, I get these patients in my clinic all the time. I get asked literally uh, on a daily basis, what is the cause for this patient's uh, you know, malady that got them admitted to the hospital? The first thing that, that my, my colleagues and I wanted to underscore just for the listener is what the initial pass uh, of a workup for acute pancreatitis should be, because I think there's a little bit of confusion about that. 
And generally speaking, a lot of us agree that, that it should be a comprehensive personal and family history. Some basic laboratory testing, which includes a liver biochemistry's a triglyceride level and a calcium, and then a right upper quadrant ultrasound. There's a bunch of other things you can order, genetic testing, IgG, serology, four serologies. All of that gets into a different space with, with specific clinical contexts. But once you get past that stuff, it's usually pancreas-specific imaging in the form of either US or MRI. You're absolutely right about your comments. US has a higher sensitivity for determining an etiology when it's studied. And, and there are several out there comparative observational studies looking at both MRI and US in the same patient. Generally, that's driven by the detection of occult biliary lithiasis, so microlithiasis or sludge, particularly in patients uh, who have a gallbladder. And you also brought up the subject of operator dependency. I find that kind of interesting. And just to take that a little bit further, I'm not sure that we even agree amongst ourselves when we identify microlithiasis or sludge. So the, the correlation of inter-observer variability for that finding is quite low, actually. That said, about 5% of patients with a single episode of acute pancreatitis will have an occult neoplasm identified in some large observational cohorts, thanks to the Dutch for that information. And with recurrence, it's even higher. Sometimes 12 or 15% of patients will have an occult neoplasm. And so EUS, while it's invasive, uh, affords us the opportunity to look at the major papilla for ampullary uh, cancers, and also maybe a little bit more sensitive than MRI for small lesions like that. MRI is a little bit more sensitive for anatomical variants, particularly with the administration of secretin. And so I think they have different strengths. My colleagues and I recommend, generally speaking, doing EUS uh, first, uh, if you have to choose between the two of them, simply because of the issue of sensitivity. But I will say in my practice, when patients kind of break through the wall and end up in a tertiary referral uh, pancreas clinic, they tend to get both uh, exams on a regular basis. But for us, it, you know, those, those things are available and accessible. When do you do these tests? So after we discharge patients from the hospital, they have acute pancreatitis. We don't want to do a lot of testing while their pancreas is still inflamed and everything looks very messy. So when would you like, when's the safe time to actually do these, this testing? I think that that's a really insightful question and it's kind of incisive. We don't actually know. We tried to answer this actually as a feature of our manuscript. And we did a literature search looking to try to understand what the ideal interval is between sort of the event and the subsequent follow-up. And, and there really isn't a lot of data on this. We kind of discussed it. I think most of us wait somewhere between two and six weeks. Really, we want to make sure that any artifactual changes in ultrasound imaging or inflammatory changes resolve in order to get a good, clean picture, particularly if you're looking for neoplasia. But knowing the optimal timing, is it's, it's an unknown variable. I think most of us wait about a month, give or take, to try to ensure that you know, we think we get a reasonable look. Dr. Cote, Dr. Law. Yeah, thanks, Jenna. I mean, I, I will say we have to be cognizant of the fact that the four authors of this clinical practice update in an endoscopy slash gastroenterology journal are going to have an inherent bias to endoscopic ultrasound. And I think Dan hit the nail on the hammer, which is that the tests are roughly equivalent. There are some advantages to EUS. I actually think the principal advantages of EUS are more in its ability to visualize the periampulary region. So for ampullary pathology, duodenal pathology, and of course the ability to sample a solid lesion should one be identified. And it certainly is more sensitive for, for tumors less than two centimeters in the pancreas. But I think the critical message is the teaching, at least when I was in training, was the first episode, you sort of give patients a pass and then it's when you really start to pursue what we used to call second-tier imaging, like endoscopic ultrasound and MRI, after a second attack. But now that we know more about 
the association between pancreatitis as a clinical biomarker to pancreatic cancer. We are trying to be more aggressive and trying to prevent the second episode. I think the general consensus now is, is that one should pursue one or both of these tests, I think would probably be how I would have framed it if I had been a voting member of this group. And also recognizing that, again, the U.S. is not something that's widely available. And while it is probably more sensitive for small stones in the gallbladder, the trade-off is specificity. And so when you look at the literature carefully on this, a lot of these patients that ultimately go to cholecystectomy are found to have adenomyotosis along the gallbladder wall that we called gallstones or cholesterol polyps. And the association with pancreatitis there is less clear. So generally speaking, when we think we find an etiology, the proof is in the pudding, meaning you got to follow these patients for several years after you have identified and intervened upon the etiology and determined if you've improved their natural history. And that's a really tough nut to crack in this, in this disease entity. I mean, I completely agree. And all these points are very valid and well taken. The second part of the question is, when do you do this testing, right? Do you like to wait four weeks? Do you do it as soon as two weeks? And are there instances where you do it too soon and then you repeat the imaging, like testing two to four weeks later? You know, my teaching was four to six weeks later. That's when we would proceed with further imaging or endoscopic ultrasound to try to detect anything, give the pancreas time to cool off. Patients who you're a little more concerned about cancer, do you wait six weeks or do you try to bring them in sooner? Well, that's a trade-off, right? The devastating thing that you can miss is a small lesion and trying to understand exactly when the right time to, to go after that is. And the, the rate at which people's pancreatitis resolve is somewhat variable. I mean, some folks are fine uh, a couple of weeks later and other folks with smoldering periduodenal inflammation that can go on for months. And so really trying to understand that before you engage in a procedure, I, I think is useful. The disease is heterogeneous enough that I think there's no real blanket answer that covers everybody uh, in that way. And that's why we had such difficulty tackling that question. Yeah, I think it depends on your level of suspicion for cholelithiasis too, right? So that's an etiology that you do want to diagnose and, and get the gallbladder out, preferably during the index admission. But I think most of us would agree that if cross-sectional CT and a transabdominal ultrasound show a completely normal gallbladder, no extrahepatic bile duct dilation, and the LFTs are completely normal, the need to do one of these tests to look for microlithiasis during the index admission is less pressing because you're sacrificing some of your specificity and finding the occult neoplasm. So it's okay to probably wait two to four to six weeks in that group. Yeah, I think the Dutch strategy is actually to repeat a transabdominal ultrasound, which we seldom seem to do around here. They don't have the body habitus that we struggle with with our patient population. Great. Well, thank you. Great points, everybody. And thank you for your very insightful uh, comments. So a common question and a common controversial question, I may, may say, is what to do for patients who have pancreas divism and develop acute pancreatitis? Do you usually offer these patients ERCP? And if yes, are you going to do endotherapy or is it just for diagnostic purposes? So I'm curious to hear what you have to tell us, Dr. Strand. 
Well, so fortunately, pancreatitis in patients with divism is not that commonplace, even though the anatomical variant itself isn't rare. It's like 7% of the, the background population. I actually appreciate having Greg on this call tonight because hopefully we'll be able to answer this question with a bit more clarity in the coming years, uh, depending upon how our ongoing clinical trial turns out. For now, I would just say that uncontrolled data at least suggests that ERCP can benefit patients with uh, acute pancreatitis, no other cause in the setting of divism, up to 60 to 80% of the time when that event is thought to be due to the divism. The trouble with the data that's out there, though, is that it's very variable of low quality for making a, a dispositive decision. There are varying dif definitions of pancreatitis. There are very different patient inclusion criteria. Outcome measures are considered to be different. And the interventions performed are all over the place. It runs the gamut from serial uh, minor papillary stent placement, sphincterotomy, sphincterotomy with other maneuvers like stent placement and balloon dilation. So it's highly variable. The only randomized data out there and that exists up until now may not even reflect contemporary practice and really just involve serial stent placement, which is uh, not something that is commonly performed for this uh, routinely. So we don't have a definitive answer. At my center, we're enrolling patients in the SHARP trial. And so for the last several years, anybody that comes in with pancreas divism and recurrent acute pancreatitis has been considered for inclusion in that clinical trial. Outside of that context, uh, just speaking from a practical perspective, what we do at our center is we offer those patients endoscopy after an exhaustive workup for other causes that often includes genetic testing, US, MRI, and so on. What we do in that context, uh, just for practical purposes, is we cut a, a minor papillary sphincterotomy. Uh, we do a balloon dilation if there's any evidence that that would be helpful in terms of uh, stenotic, that, uh, you know, ostia that's above the level of incision. And then we place a stent that is not a temporary stent, but rather would dwell for at least a period of three months before removing or exchanging that, very often removing it after that first pass. And we'll say that practice is a little bit different, actually, than what is, I think, going to be um, seen in that clinical trial in the sense that most stents play there are going to be temporary ones that fall out because it allows you to blind the a sham with a uh, experimental arm patient. So we'll see how that turns out. I actually don't know. I'm uh, recruiting patients, but not looking at data. But at least for the VISM, that's our current approach. Very good. Dr. Cote, anything to add? Well, I appreciate the marketing of the, the SHARP trial, which is you know being done at more than 20 centers across the U.S. And to my knowledge, is the first time we've ever done a sham ERCP and, and pancreatic disease. So the reason it's important is because this is a really complex disease. And as Dan alluded to, you know, we oftentimes will use the term acute recurrent pancreatitis, sometimes not as rigorously as we should. So patients that have some pain and maybe a scattering lipase range that doesn't quite meet elevation and many folks that don't even have radiographic evidence of pancreatitis. And this is probably a disease spectrum. But the point is, you're not likely to get acute pancreatitis as we traditionally define it after you do an intervention if they didn't have it before you offered the intervention. And so that's, I think, what we found in looking at the old literature on this. But I was, was happy to see the very, very trepidatious approach to the use of ERCP in this clinical practice update for both patients with pancreas divism and standard duct anatomy, because I think a lot of gastroenterologists sort of feel like the decision's been made at pancreas divism is a, quote, etiology that you'll oftentimes see in these cohort studies looking at MRCP and, and EUS and other tests to find an etiology for pancreatitis. And it's not so clear that these are, again, etiologies if you cannot show that treatment, in this case, making the minor papillary orifice bigger, improve the natural history of the disease. 
So if anyone takes anything from this clinical practice update, it's that pretty much everything in here, with the exception of the bile duct stricture recommendation, is based on very, very limited data and has to be taken with a very big grain of salt. And so ideally, patients that are offered, especially ERCP, which has a clearly high risk profile, it should be really ideally done in the context of a research study. Totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. And uh, for standard anatomy, the data is even weaker uh, at present. And we look forward to seeing the results of that study that you're currently conducting. Hopefully, you'll shed some light as to how better to manage our patients. So we all know pain in patients with chronic pancreatitis is extremely burdensome and really impacts negatively our patient's quality of life. In cases of obstruction, the next step is to recommend surgery. But can you please tell us a little more about why surgery over pancreatic endotherapy? And what is your threshold to refer to surgery in these patients? Dr. Law? Thanks, Janet, for the question. Certainly an important discussion to have. As Greg and Dan have both mentioned, a lot of the data that was driving the best practice advice is quite limited, and this is no different. The interesting thing is that of the data we do have, surgery clearly shows a benefit. There's three randomized trials that suggest that surgical intervention, particularly early surgical intervention, is superior to to pancreatic endotherapy for pain control. The argument can be made that those trials are not without limitation, and there certainly is a multitude of reasons of why patients generally are shuttled towards endotherapy as opposed to surgery. And I think it's important to outline those, which is what we tried to do in this particular advice to this question in our study. One of the main drivers for referral to endotherapy is the fact that this is seen by patients as less invasive compared to surgery. But it's important to note that going to ERCP before surgery generally is going to require a commitment to multiple procedures, whereas surgery is a one-time intervention. The other important point that I would say in terms of why patients actually get endoscopy more than surgery is, at least in the centers that I've worked at and where I have colleagues, there's not as many surgeons as there used to be who are willing to pursue surgical intervention for benign disease. I think, you know, the main take-home point of this question for us is to acknowledge that data does support surgical intervention for pain control. And it's probably prudent for patients to be aware of that fact and potentially to be seen by a surgeon prior to embarking on endotherapy. I do think there is a role for endotherapy. And from a clinical perspective, like I said, that's what generally is pursued. Overall, we can do a better job of educating our patients as to what the data shows its inherent limitations and allow them to make uh, decisions as, as they see fit. That's the main driver is the, the best data we have, which is not great, suggests surgery is better. In terms of when to refer, that's a difficult question, I think, to answer. A lot of that's probably based on local decision-making or institutional decision-making based on what's available in your hospital or in your region. To be The real answer is I'm not sure what the right answer is as to when we should re- refer them to surgery, other than to say, I think that discussion should be had with the patient before a decision is made for them. So I guess by that, the de facto answer would be early on in the patient's course prior to going forward with endotherapy, just so they know what's available. 
Great. Now, how about in asymptomatic patients who have a pancreatic duct obstruction? So what, what is your approach to these patients? I actually see inflammatory bowel disease patients, and a lot of times patients have a stricture and they have symptoms, and it's still difficult for me to send them, to, like for me to convince them to go to surgery. So I wonder if it's the same for you. I think by and large, the vast majority of patients who are asymptomatic with radiographic evidence or, or EUS evidence of ductal obstruction or potentially ductal hypertension probably should be left alone. I think that there can be an argument made for rare instances in younger patients who have a single obstructing lesion, whether it be a stricture or a stone, that you could make an argument that pursuing endotherapy would allow them or, or prevent them from having disease progression, chronic changes, atrophy of the remaining pancreas. I think that conversation is important, uh, but certainly is on a case-by-case basis. For example, 40-year-old patient with a singular stricture in the pancreatic head versus a 40-year-old patient with a single stricture deep in the tail of the pancreas or a stone deep in the tail of the pancreas, you have to consider how much viable pancreas you're potentially preserving by moving forward with intervention and, and weigh that against the risks. But the 10,000-foot answer, in my opinion, is the vast majority of these patients should be left well enough alone, in, in my opinion. I would say the same thing. In our practice, we, we see probably a fair number of referrals for asymptomatic patients, and we tend to leave them alone. This idea of, of delaying atrophy is interesting, but I don't think the literature is robust enough or dispositive enough to make that a universal recommendation at all. There's only a couple of uh, examples of observational trials or studies where intervention reduced or delayed the onset of diabetes, for example. Dr. Cote, is that your practice also? We are in a data-free zone when it comes to patients with asymptomatic, quote-unquote, obstructing disease. And I say, put that in, in quotations because to be politically correct, I'll say the cave person endoscopist sees a stone in a duct and thinks stone must be removed or stricture in duct, which by the way, there's not even really agreement on what a stricture is. The ESGE has tried to define it. And I think they did you know, a reasonably good job of trying to objectify what it is. But a dilated duct does not mean it's an obstructive or hypertensive duct. And so the concept of, of decompression to promote pancreatic parenchymal preservation Exocrine and endocrine function is not evidence based. There's a reason that stone was put there. That reason is not addressed by the stent or the lithotriptor. So it's the reason the stone got there that needs to be addressed the smoking, the alcohol, the genetic profile, potentially metabolic issues, et cetera. So you should not do endoscopic therapy for an asymptomatic patient. And for a symptomatic patient, you know, as Ryan said, the reason the group reluctantly, I'm sure, advocated for surgery first is because the response rates for endoscopic therapy are roughly 30%. And when you're talking about pain as your primary outcome, that is very much within the realm of what a placebo effect would be. And I'm sure you're, you're aware, if you're not, you'll hear about recently a drug that was recently studied in a placebo-controlled trial for painful pancreatitis was shown to reduce pain in 50% of the patients. That's very exciting. The problem is, is that the placebo group also had a 50% reduction in pain. So the drug is not approved for use because it was no better than a placebo. 
So we really have to approach this whole entity of painful chronic pancreatitis with a totally new lens than we have in our older mentality of seeing pathology in a duct and saying pathology must be removed. It's far more complicated than that. Very interesting discussion. And you did bring us to our last question on how to address strictures, whether they're pancreatic strictures or biliary strictures. What do you do? What's your approach to managing these strictures? This question's open to whoever would like to chime in. I'll take a quick uh, biliary strictures. If there's no contraindication anatomically, um, metallic covered, fully covered metallic stents are going to get the job done with fewer interventions. So to me, that's a no-brainer. Pancreatic strictures, we've already kind of outlined the controversies with it. But once you embark upon treatment, like Ryan said, it becomes a labor of love because these strictures, the, the whole pancreas likes to clamp down on your stents. So you're typically, you know, working from a single stent of the largest diameter that you can fit to as many plastic stents as you can fit in parallel to give it a stretch and promote a sort of cast formation around the stents. The problem being is that an eight to 10 millimeter duct at the initial procedure becomes a three millimeter duct at follow-up. And so you're restricted anatomically in that regard. So it's a labor of love. There was a recent attempt to bring a fully covered pancreatic stent to the market and that was unsuccessful, again, because only a quarter of the patients derived a pain benefit with metal stenting. So I was trained to use plastic stents for bile duct strictures and have almost entirely converted my practice to metal stents on the basis of the, the recent evidence that supports their use. There might be a couple of examples where you might still stick with plastic stents, I think, if you're really, truly concerned about obstructing a gallbladder or in somebody that needs repetitive tissue sampling or something like that. But for the most part, metal stents seem like they're cheaper and easier and less invasive uh, because of fewer procedures for the patients. My approach is similar to what Greg outlined, pretty much 100% metal stent. In terms of the pancreatic duct stent, the only thing I would say, while we tend to use multiple stents in parallel, it is interesting that guidelines from ESGE uh, have recommended just a single 10 French stent. I tend to believe that more stents of smaller caliber work better. I think that I, do, I would again say I don't know that there's great evidence uh, in that, but that tends to be my practice. If we don't know that stenting helps, you can put whatever stent you want, right? That's kind of how we should approach it For <laughs> until sure. we have better evidence. You don't like observational data from 2002 or 1997 as a, as a dispositive answer to a question that is uh, more complex than we thought? So I believe we need more data in order to answer these questions. So 100%. we're reaching the end of the meeting. So just this may be a hard question, but if you want the reader to take one take-home message from your CPU, Dr. Strand, what would that highlight be? Yeah. So I would just say that despite the fact that acute pancreatitis is the number one GI diagnosis that results in hospital admission, and the fact that chronic pancreatitis is a huge burden to both patients and our healthcare system, the state of our literature to guide decision-making in, uh, in this setting, is, as particularly as it pertains to endoscopy, is not that great, right? So the disease, it's partly because the disease is heterogeneous. It's partly because the uh, practice patterns are heterogeneous, but it's definitely due to an absence of controlled data. And so I'd love to see really more interest in opportunities in forwarding the science on this, in particular, uh, as it pertains to endotherapy. I think, you know, as a CPU, we've tried to give best practice advice. And there's a reason that this is not a, a clinical guideline with grade methodology, because I think you would fall very short of meeting muster to make any generalizable recommendations. Uh, but we try to do our best here to at least give people some reasonable thoughts uh, about how to help manage these patients. Fantastic. Excellent point. Thank you. Dr. Law? 
you know, I think the take home point that I would like our readers to gain is a little bit of just taking pause before pushing patients through the paces in terms of both evaluation and therapy. This is a great example in, in GI that it really requires the art of medicine to kind of think your way through on a case-by-case basis in terms of what each individual patient should kind of be put through. This isn't, a, to me, a, a protocolized approach with both evaluation or intervention. And I think the lack of data is a great reason as to how we've got to this point. Uh, as Greg mentioned, this from an endotherapy perspective, it's not simple like, uh, you know, see stone, remove stone or see stricture, treat stricture. There's a lot of forethought and afterthought that should go into managing patients who fall into these categories in an appropriate manner. Uh, so I think that's that's the biggest thing is just take pause and, and provide some careful careful thought about how to best care for your patients. Agree 100%. Patients come first. And sometimes, you know, we have a lot of tools. We think that it may help. Sometimes we feel the pressure that we want to do something for our patients, but we need to take a step back and make sure that this is really something that's going to benefit them and impact their disease course or outcomes significantly. Dr. Cote, any point that you thought was like really striking? Again, I think the principal education here is that a lot of the points that were touched upon in these recommendations were perceived as no-brainers, definitely do ERCP for patients with unexplained pancreatitis, pancreas divism, the jury has been, has been out on that, you know, go ahead and treat them, decompress the pancreatic duct, et cetera. Everything is written with cautious verbiage because it's such a heterogeneous patient population and what we thought was were inevitable truths several years ago, we now realize with our better understanding of the pathophysiology of the disease, the genetic overlay, et cetera, that this is actually a much more complicated story. So if you are offering interventions for these patients in practice, you need to be very transparent with them about what we know and what we don't know. Agree 100%. So everybody, thank you for tuning in to today's episode on endoscopic approach to recurrent acute and chronic pancreatitis. Really very special thanks to today's guests, Dr. Gregory Cote, Dan Strand, and Ryan Law. To learn more, please access the Clinical Practice Update Expert Review published in the Gastroenterology Journal. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. In the meantime, say hello on social media. You can reach AGA on all platforms at the handle Mer Gastro ASSN. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.